Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome to another fantastic episode of JS Party. Uh, this is our last episode for the year 2018, so it'll be a fun one. I'm Nick Nisi, and joining me today is Kevin Ball, or K-Ball. Yo. And also Chris Hiller, or Bone Skull. Hello. So, uh, today we've got some, some pretty exciting topics, and we're going to start it off by um, addressing a little bit of follow-up, and that is with the State of JS survey. Um, we had an episode about that uh, a few weeks ago where we talked about uh, the data and some some things that uh, we like about it, but also some uh, minor criticisms that we have of it. And we actually got a response for that. So Kevin, do you want to uh, summarize that? Sure. So uh, yeah, our big criticism or the thing that we talked about was a concern about the transparency uh, of the data and how it was collected and sort of this question of how representative is this data of the broader JavaScript ecosystem. And at the time that we did that podcast, the, there wasn't actually that much visible on the survey about uh, you know, who answered it or how it was answered or, or how they reached those folks. And um, you know, there had been con- some concerns trickling through the, the community discussion about that. And so you know, we brought that up. And I don't know if I, I'm probably going to you know, mispronounce his name, but Sasha, um, Sasha Grief, who's one of the three folks who did that survey, um, responded, uh, which first off props, thank you for engaging mm-hmm. with us. Uh, that was really cool. Know, it was super cool. Um, and you know, it's, it really shows that, you know, their hearts are in the right place. They're trying to figure out, you know, how to do this right. Um, so what they did is first they exposed a little more data. So they exposed, um, some data on the survey itself essentially around the aggregation of how did you hear about the survey? Uh, and then he wrote up a blog post talking about all that. And so there's, um, you know, there were 20,000 ish respondents um, of which something on the order of 7,000 answered that question of how did they hear about it? Uh, the rest is either other or unknown, um, which we don't actually know which one is, which 
I mean, they kind of broke it down. You know, their biggest uh, sources were email and Twitter, um, followed by Reddit, various other things. I mean, he did some additional digging, you know, looking at referrer data, which doesn't tell you how they first heard of it, but how they got to the the survey and various other things. So kind of really trying to address some of that transparency question of like, how did they reach folks? You know, what does the sample look like? Um, I don't know. I think we can discuss how, you know, sort of what that data ended up looking like and, and how representative we think it actually is. Uh, but I think it's a really positive step towards transparency. Um, and, you know, they, he highlighted in the end of his post and he said, you know, they're trying to get closer and closer to the truth of the JavaScript ecosystem and their approach or their goal. Um, the, the thing they think is the best way to do that is to keep trying to grow the number of people taking the survey. Uh, so they could just get a large enough response that they're going to be representative. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, I think so. So what did you guys think? Like, did you read through the the response? What was your reaction? I guess it, it, it's unclear to me. What, what does other unknown mean? Does that mean that there was a question on the survey? How did you hear about that? And they, uh, the respondent declined to answer it or what? Yeah, I suspect there's some in that camp and some who there is probably an other response. But yeah, it's a good question. And there's no no distinction right now between somebody who said, oh, I learned about it some other way versus somebody who just didn't answer the question. Yeah, it, it is interesting that it's such a high um, value that is in the other unknown category. And yeah, I, I don't know. It'd be good to know the distinction between that. But uh, this is also a good way to uh, improve the survey next time, I think. Yeah, I mean, having done a bunch of attempted analytics stuff, I think that's that's pretty common, right? Like if you dig into your Google Analytics data, there's usually a big chunk that you can't account for. Sure. Um, and I at least tend to operate on the under the assumption that the distribution of the unaccounted for is going to roughly match the distribution of the accounted for. <laughs> but I don't know if that's accurate. I'd be curious to know if um, they have user agent information and... Uh, if they were uh, suspicious that somebody might be trying to game it as well. I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't see anything that necessarily suggests that, but it's good to rule out. Yeah. So they had, they, they talked about some of the referrer values. So they had the browser referrer info, which gives you essentially the last hop, right? It says, okay, what was the last thing that actually linked them here? It doesn't necessarily tell you how they heard about it, right? Like they might've, seen the email, gone to the announcement post, and then clicked through from the announcement post, uh, which was the top referrer uh, of their recorded sets. But yeah, so there's some data there. Uh, well, I mean, by, by user agent, I mean, um, you know, are people taking this on their mobile device? Is this, you know, a desktop Chrome or, or is this somebody's bot? Mm, interesting. Um, so that's, I'm not suggesting that happened here. Um, but, you know, it's just, uh, again, it's it's good to rule that out, um, you know, data scrubbing and the like. So, I mean, yeah. it would be nice to really just, just get the dump of the raw data and just kind of... That would be. And it, in fact, I think you know, when I was talking with folks in the channel about, you know, this feedback, somebody said, hey, you know, this is good, but what I'd really like to do is dig into the data myself and say, okay, you know, for example... You say all these folks came in via email. Can we get a perspective of like, and, and he said, I think Sasha said in there that the email list is mostly folks who took the survey in the past. So that doesn't actually tell us anything about their 
what niche of the ecosystem they're from, just that they happen to see this in the past. Uh, but you know, maybe if we could dig into the data, we could actually do our own correlations to say, hey, all these email people said that they used React, or all these email people said they used you know Angular or what have you. Like maybe that that would let us get a little bit better sense. Do you think that that level of openness could skew or, or create uh, unrealistic pers- perspectives potentially? How do you mean? Like, I don't know. But like if you had had that and you started building up your own ways of analyzing it, uh, those could be biased. And then you're of course writing a blog yeah. post based on that. And, you know, the Angular folks are biased one way and the React folks are biased another. Yeah, what is it? Lies, damn lies and statistics. Like you can do, <laughs> yeah. use the data to show whatever the heck you want. Uh, there's some truth to that. But I also think that the only way we get to a real understanding of this is through discussion. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, having more people looking at that data and slicing it and dicing it. And, you know, if somebody, if the data is out there and it's available, then somebody could do that story and somebody else could say, no, you're cherry picking the data. And here's why, because I could show you with the real data. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. That probably is more work for the the team behind the survey because there's probably some amount of DN or like anonymization they need to do. There's probably some amount of data cleaning they need to do so that they're not leaking private data. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Sasha, if you're listening to this or other folks, uh, we love it. Thank you. We want more. <laughs> we want you know we want it all. Um, <laughs> but it would be really neat to be able to to kind of access the raw data. And you, know, I think in a lot of ways the goal of this survey is to get a sense of what's actually legitimately going on in the ecosystem. And the reason folks are wanting more data here is that we care and we want to understand like, what does this represent and how, uh, how representative is it of the ecosystem? You know, going back to that original episode, we talked about, or I, I talked about my assumption based on who's giving the survey is that their audience is going to be very react focused. And Based on the data that I have visible here, I'm actually, I don't know how much of this is just like reconfirming my bias or my my own bias, but I don't see anything that necessarily disproves that. Because um, if we look at the, you know, if I think about how are these folks going to have their, their own audience most, it's going to be the people who heard about it through email and Twitter, right? These are the people who are already following the folks giving the survey in one form or another. Um, that's my assumption. I don't know that for sure. Uh, if we could dig into the data, we might be able to tell. But that, you know, of the folks who who responded to that question of how they first heard of it, you know, taking out the other and unknown, 60% of the folks who actually answered the question were email and Twitter. So that's a pretty strong set from what I'm assuming. And once again, just an assumption, but what I'm assuming is their their existing core audience. And I think that that's something that's going to get better with time because we all took the survey and um, presumably we'll be on a mailing list about it next year. And uh, I, I know I tweeted about it and I posted it in some Slack rooms and tried to get others to, to participate as well. And, um, you know, I think that that will just have a compounding effect uh, as the survey goes on. So, I, I mean, I guess I don't have really easy, any reason necessarily to distrust the analysis of, of, of this. And so... Well, I think, you know, the raw data would be great. Uh, I think the bigger question to me and, and the um, I remember back, jeez. Uh, uh, so there is an episode of the changelog from and I just looked it up Friday, June 2nd, 2017. And it uh, they had Franny Zlotnick uh, and Nadia uh, and Michael on there. 
And uh, they were talking about the GitHub open source survey uh, of 2017. And like a great portion of this discussion talked about how um, they really agonized not so much over the questions or like the, the data set that came back, but how they they reach out to people to to take the survey that was the big uh, concern um especially as as Franny put it um because depending on who you ask and how you ask them it's going to skew your results one way or the other um and so you you kind of have to start with with answering those questions okay this is how we chose who, you know where to um, where to promote our survey. This is who we emailed. This is, um, you know, this is what we did to, to, to get people, not necessarily how the people, um, I mean, it's part of the, it's part of the, the, the question, the, uh, the question, but not necessarily how the people wound up at the survey, but what did you do as the, as the survey author to, to get the survey into the hands of respondents? Um, I would really encourage anybody who's interested in like surveys of just trying to gather data like this, like the state of JavaScript, anybody who's involved in that, check out this particular episode on the changelog. It's episode 252. Um, it's really interesting about some of the, you know, the, the thoughts and planning that go into a survey like this that, that uh, the data scientists at GitHub um, had to go through. That's a really good recommendation. I I do like this idea. I mean, I think getting more rigorous about it is probably a good thing. Um, I do think there's definitely some value to the approach of like, let's just get as many people as possible as we can, outreach to as many different communities as we can. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, does it make sense? Should we brainstorm some quick ways to uh, help get this out to more folks next year? So maybe we get a broader uh, survey, maybe the the JS, state of JS folks could partner with GitHub and get some sort of flag on any JavaScript repo. That would be kind of amazing. Or, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe they can partner with NPM and get a bunch of folks, anybody using NPM packages through there. Um, I mean, any business who would sign up for that would want <laughs> access to that data. And so I suppose that it, it just, it depends on whether that's in the interests of, of the people behind the, the survey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely partnering with sites that people go to. Sure. Uh, GitHub, NPM, uh, Stack Overflow. But I mean, again, they have they have their own surveys. I right? was just going to say that so, all three of those have their own. <laughs> very true. But that, that raises an interesting thing. And uh, I'm trying to correlate this to like political surveys, which I absolutely don't want to do. But um, like a lot of times people will look at like aggregates of of those surveys to to try and see trends because they might be biased in one way or another. And maybe one way to beat that bias is to have a, uh, a comparison of the surveys and, and the data that they're getting to give you an average. That's a great point. I think, you know, in the political world, aggregates of polls have been shown to be an extremely effective way to model the system, right? Like, and they'll do, um, you know, I think the most famous set is 538 and they aggregate and they have every pollster. They, you know, will look at their history over time and sort of show what their biases are and try to adjust for that. So yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting possibility now that, you know, as you said, GitHub's doing a survey, NPM's doing a survey, Stack Overflow's doing a survey. Here's the state of JavaScript survey. Uh, yeah. Who's going to do it? JS Party 2019. 
You heard it here first. Yeah, I, I think that that is, uh, that is something that I do personally. Like I'll, I'll look at the specific results that I care about from this survey and from the NPM survey and from GitHub. And, you know, I'm really interested in what, what TypeScript's doing and how, and uh, seeing the, the trends with that. And I like being able to just in an unscientific way, put that together on my own and kind of see, oh yeah, all of them are kind of saying that, that TypeScript is huge right now. Uh, so it makes me believe it a lot more. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. So we, we were talking about the survey in uh, the previous segment, and uh, just to close that out, I just want to say that I, I do appreciate the work, uh, and I think that we all share this sentiment. We appreciate the work that Sasha and his team are doing, and I look forward to, to taking it next year and seeing the results and um, going forward. And also, um, I'm appreciative of the other surveys. So one that is going on right now is the NPM survey, uh, which you can go in and participate in right now and uh, let your voice be heard. So with that, we're going to change topics and uh, talk about the other big news of the the last week or so, uh, and that is the news that Microsoft Edge is dropping uh, its browser engine, and it's going to be revived as uh, a Chromium browser and adopting uh, V8 over its Chakra Core JavaScript engine. So uh, I thought that this would be a really great topic to talk about uh, and to to get your ideas on what this means and whether you're excited about it or um, disappointed or fearful. Uh, what, what, are th- what are your thoughts? It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I say that I don't use edge much, uh, tiny, tiny bit. And as a developer in the short term, this is going to make my life easier. However, I think it's a really bad, it's making a bad situation worse in terms of, you know, we're already seeing Sites that don't work if you're not using Chrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're already seeing some of this, you know, return to the early days of the web when it's like build your site for IE and the site only works in IE. Like that's terrible. That was what Chrome was trying to break away from is like creating, you know, more of a standards based uh, competitive browser culture. And we got, you know, a solid almost what five or 10 years of really great comp- competition in the browser world that led to extremely rapid progress and advancement in this web platform. And now it seems like everything's consolidating back to one browser. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think you know, in the short term, that makes our lives easier. And there's all these great stories about, okay, now that everybody's investing in this one thing, and so it's going to move faster and whatever. But like we've seen what happens when something gets monopolized. This is not a unique story. This is something that is just happens over and over and over again. Monopolies lead to stagnation. Yeah. And that, like the problem is that it's that not everything is moving towards it. Like there's still Safari and WebKit, and WebKit as a mobile browser is super popular because you have no other choice 
Um, and, and so where does it, where does it leave that? And then of course we can't forget about Firefox. Uh, and they've had a, a very, um, good history of, you know, going against the grain with, in terms of like IE, they really pushed IE to, to move forward and, and push the web forward a ton because we, we could still be on an old version of internet Explorer without that. How big of a gap do you say there is between WebKit and Chromium? Like, aren't they basically the same thing? That's a good, a good question. And I wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. So like Internet Explorer has its its own code base and they had their, uh, I, I don't remember what their original JavaScript engine was called, but now it's Chakra Core. Mozilla has its, is it Chaos? Not Chaos Monkey, something Monkey engine. And then there was Safari and Safari was built on WebKit. And then Chrome came around and it was originally built on WebKit as well. But then they were trying to add too many features that were uh, that the WebKit team or the Safari team, I guess, wasn't interested in. So they had to end up forking that instead of just adding a ton of Chrome specific flags. So they forked that and created Blink. And Blink is what Chrome is built on now and, Chrome, and Chromium for that matter. And then Opera dropped their engine and went with Blink. So they're a Blink based browser. Brave is a, Brink, a Blink based browser. And now going forward, Edge will be a Blink based browser. So just to, to make sure then the, Blink is the is the rendering engine because uh, in a browser you've got a rendering engine which deals with like how do I take this HTML and the CSS stuff and then you have a JavaScript engine which interacts with that but is not the same thing right so Chrome is Blink and V8 mm-hmm. WebKit is WebKit using a different JavaScript engine or is it also using V8 it looks like it was originally the KDE JavaScript engine I'm looking now JavaScript Core. JavaScript core. Okay. So it, it still, it does actually have a distinct, uh, it's a distinct JavaScript engine and has, and while it's a similar background, it has a, a distinct renderer as well. Is that correct? I think so. And I was conflating all of those things. So thank you for the clarification on that. We should be careful not to conflate Chrome with Chromium as well. Yeah. So what, uh, how would you characterize uh, a definition for each of those then? Uh, Chromium is, uh, you know, it's it's the open source. Uh, I don't know. I suppose it's the. I don't even know. <laughs> Chromium, Chromium is the open source browser that Chrome is built on top of. When 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 they say Edge is going to be built on Chromium, does that really just mean Edge is going to pull in Blink and V8? Because I, I, I don't I don't quite understand. Does that mean that no, actually, we're going to build a browser on you know, we're gonna extend Chromium with what we want for, for Edge, like Chrome does. Um uh, I'm not so quite, yeah, I think quite sure what that means. I think it is worth breaking apart what these different pieces are. So you have the as we said, there's like the core rendering engine. This is how does how do we take HTML and CSS and create you know, a visual page? We have the JavaScript engine, which is the interaction piece. And then there's the user interface piece of this. So my understanding is Chrome, for example, and Brave for that matter, and some a lot of these others, they're using the same rendering engine, Blink, the same JavaScript engine, V8, and then they each have their own set of user experience pieces they add on top of that um you know chrome has like the identity stuff and and various other pieces uh brave has all this interesting ad blocking and other things they're putting on top but they're all using the same underlying rendering engine and the same underlying javascript engine and i think for edge their the plan as i understand it is the same thing so they're going to continue doing a unique user interface and try to innovate at that layer um 
but they're moving to a shared rendering engine and a shared JavaScript engine. That, that's my understanding as well, at least. And it gets to sort of some interesting questions, right? Like increasingly browsers are in my mind, like they're the, they're almost an operating system, right? Like this is like, and especially as you start adding uh, things like WebAssembly and stuff, like this is the new application environment for the web. Um, if you actually map that metaphor over into real operating systems, like we have right now kind of three big, there are three big actual operating systems out there, right? There's Linux and that it's all side of things. There's Windows and its whole side of things. And then there's like the BSD Mac OS like set of things. And then there's a bunch of like micro operating systems that never got any traction. Here we have a scenario where there's been three big, possibly four. I like that the WebKit Blink thing is is interesting because that's, I mean, maybe that's the equivalent of Linux and BSD. I don't know. Uh, but you had three big, big-ish between Firefox edge in its whole history and chromium based stuff uh chromium webkit maybe four with, with web if you really if we call webkit different and now we're just dropping one we're getting rid of it it's going away well and it's not it's not going to go away right away right we're still supporting older versions of ie uh, i am at least and also edge and now am i going to be supporting a chromium based edge and the old edge and then also old ie potentially forever um, it's, it might just be adding another piece into that. At least the Chromium engine uh, or Chromium Edge will be very similar to to Chrome, which, admittedly, I mostly do my development in. Uh, so it, it probably will be much easier and won't be that much of a burden over what I'm currently doing. But the old stuff won't be going away tomorrow. But it is a, a an interesting perspective, I guess, w- with the way things are going. So now we have Google uh, and Microsoft that will be collaborating on the same engine uh, or the same code base for their browsers. So there will be a lot of shared features in there. And then Opera's in there as well, although uh, at a much smaller scale. Um, and then we have Safari going its own way, which is still kind of has a, a little bit of a shared history with, with Chrome uh, in, in terms of Chrome originally being uh, WebKit-based. And then we have Firefox that is uh, their own thing with SpiderMonkey and their Gecko rendering engine. Uh, going another way. And how do you see those browsers, the non-Chrome-based browsers, being able to compete with this going forward? Because Chrome, the Chromium project will have Microsoft and Google, two of the biggest players in technology behind it, and being able to potentially throw their weight around on features that they want and want to support that may not be the best thing for the web or the best thing or, or something that Mozilla or Safari are interested in going forward with. I mean, that's my big concern, right? Like, Because this is this is putting a scenario in place where there is no balance of power and competition is small. Like if you look at browser user share, how much does Firefox have? Like it's 10%. Under t- it's 10%. You have WebKit, you said on mobile. I think there, it has to be on mobile. I think that's only in uh, iOS, right? Android's mm-hmm. on Blink-related browsers. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real concern and I'm worried we're going to get it's going to fragment the web because you're going to end up with essentially Chrome running one way and not enough counterbalance on the other, or it's going to stagnate the web where it's like there is no sort of exchange of ideas. And if we think about some of the contributions that the browser team at Microsoft has done, like CSS Grid was initially implemented in IE, right? Like that's, 
proved out and, and it's a concept and an imp- initial implementation in a non-Chromium browser. And it's a phenomenal leap forward for the web. Would that have happened if they hadn't been doing their own independent browser innovation? I'm not clear. Yeah, that's a really, a really good point. Uh, and, and a concern going forward because there will be potentially less innovation coming uh, from these two combined companies or their, their combined work. And so it'll, it'll be interesting, but they, they could also be pushing things that are very specific to them. Or we run into another issue where Microsoft wants to do something, but Google doesn't want to do that. And then they end up adding more and more flags. Uh, if I understand the story correctly about the WebKit uh, Blink split, maybe they go for a while and then it splits off into two different things. Again, that's also a possibility. It is, though it'll be two different things that once again have more of a shared history, which I don't know. I mean, another way that we could think about this and and something that's sort of been mulling in my head is um, in terms of where the layers of innovation are, maybe the browser stack is getting close to mature. And especially, I think we're we're on a train right now to get WebAssembly working well. Mm-hmm. on the web. And once that's in place, maybe that's not the place where we're doing the innovation. Maybe it's at higher levels and, you know, having the same, you know, stable, having just one thing that you're working on um uh, can actually enable a lot of innovation at a at the higher levels of it, right? On at the level of application development things like that. I don't know. I'm not sold on that argument, but it makes me wonder, right? Cuz like you see this once again also play out in the history of technology is you'll end up you know, when a technology is new, you have lots of competitors and different people, you know, try to jump in and doing things. And as it matures, it consolidates down to one or two companies, but that's not where the innovation layer is anymore. Now the innovation layer is building on top of that or using that as a a building block inside something else. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to theorize about where this is going to go. And I, I guess in my mental model of it, I've been using Brave as a, an example, although it's not a perfect example. It is a Chromium-based browser that has a little bit of a different look and feel and some different functionality on top of it. They're, they're innovating in their own ways, uh, and there's a changelog episode about that, uh, but they're, they are effectively bringing in Chrome to get the, the best browsing experience uh, instead of br- doing their own engine or, or relying on that. They're, they're going to get the, the up-to-date features. They definitely don't have the market share of Microsoft or Google, for that matter, to, to probably hugely sway things, but they get... Uh, a lot of the benefits, and now Microsoft is going to be getting a lot of benef- the benefits of that. And I'm wondering if, um, like, I don't know the fate of the F12 developer tools, uh, but I'm assuming that those are going to be replaced with the Chrome Dev tools, and that that'll be interesting. And that is kind of one of the reasons that I mainly de- use Chrome as a development browser because I really like those tools. Uh, I know how to to navigate around them very well, and they're the same tools that if I want to debug a node process, uh, because mm-hmm. nodes using V8, they work really well with that. So it's it, it definitely seems that we're, we're moving towards a monoculture with that. Although Firefox still has develop, uh, excellent development tools and WebKit has, they're, they're sure trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I also just have concerns about the level of concentration of power at Google. Like, frankly, they own too much. And I feel conflicted about this because unlike Facebook, which I also have concerns about, like Facebook, I could leave their product behind and not be bothered. Google, I love a lot of the stuff they're doing. Search is amazing. Gmail is amazing. Cal- they've got the best calendaring options. Like 
they're doing great, great stuff, but mm-hmm. they also have just a ridiculous level of control of the web. Like they suck up over half of the web's advertising dollars. You know, they have massive browser market share. They have massive email market share. They have massive market share along all these different dimensions, all in one company that has basically shown that their business model is to get the best possible model of who you are as a person so they can show you the best ads. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. They have the biggest mobile market share too, because Android is huge. Uh, and then Blink is the most popular mobile browser because every every one of them but Safari is built on it. And yeah, it is terrifying to think about how much uh, weight Google has in, in all of this and the technology that we use every day. Yeah. Well, and I know a number, because I live in the Bay Area, I know a number of people who work at Google and they all are trying to do the right thing. But we also know that power corrupts and the more power that gets concentrated in a single place, the more likely it is to cause problems. And you see, you know, they've, they've had little missteps where, for example, the, the whole, like, if you log in with Gmail on Chrome for a while, it would automatically log in Chrome with that user. And so you were getting you know, tracked your login experience across every tab you had in Chrome. And there was big backlash. And so they backed off of that. But how many things are there decisions being made that aren't as public, that aren't as visible, that are all leaking away, you know, our privacy and things like that going to Google's benefit? It's, yeah, there's too much power there. And this, I think, is just another step in that direction. So what if, what if things went the other way? What if Mozilla and uh, Safari both switched over to becoming Chromium browsers and they all just contributed to Chromium to make it the one, the one browser project of the web. Do you think that that would be good or bad? Terrible. That's even more of the same issue of monoculture of you end up in a place where, I mean, well, on the one hand you can make the argument, okay, now you have all these same companies that were already doing things. They're now all engaged. They're just engaged in a different way. Uh, But I think history matters and the institutions around it matter, right? Like mm-hmm. Chromium has been owned and run by Google for a long time. And even if they're doing a lot to you know, distribute that project management across the web and distribute the the management of that organization, like they are going to continue to have an outside influence on it. Right now, Firefox, uh, Mozilla gets to make all the decisions for Firefox and they also do it in a very open way and they have, you know, open source community and yada, 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 but like make no bones about it. Mozilla is making those decisions. The same thing is true with Chromium and Google. I mean, these companies, you know, Apple, Google, Mozilla, Microsoft, they're, uh, they control essentially the, the specification for the web. You know, they're the members of the, uh, of the Whatwick, right? And so, you know, one could look at this and say, all right, well, um, if they are coming to agreement on on standards and have, have and have um, you know, fought back against you know like the um, W three C's EME like, you know DRM um, which they have you know what is what does that mean does that suggest that these companies can work together in a way that is beneficial for the open web. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm I'm not convinced it's all doom and gloom um, necessarily. I mean, I I feel like of those four companies, the only one that really has this um, uh, incentive to to invade your privacy is Google. Yeah, 
Apple, Mozilla, Microsoft are not advertising companies. So uh, maybe that balances things out. I mean, it, it, I guess it's it's a, it's difficult to say what would happen um, if if everybody coalesced around the same basic web browsing engine. It would certainly be cool for developers who would have a lot more confidence in the environment that they deploy their code to. Um, but, you know, other than that, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it's in a perfect world. I would love a, a, a nonprofit entity, a, a, an entity that is concerned with users privacy to have more of a stake. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's 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 kind of all about it's about the resources and and who can who can throw developers at the problem and and so far that's that's been a lot of Google so yeah and I, I think that you hit on it correctly once once this takes over and once the old Edge and Internet Explorer die in the short term that will probably be a better experience for users and developers because most likely they'll be aligned on things things will get easier for us because it's Thing, like things will just work a lot better uh, and have more consistency between everything. Um, and But as things go forward and decisions have to be made and disagreements are had, that's where things are going to start falling apart because Google has way too much control over this. Uh, do you think that you would uh, feel better if Microsoft had instead chosen uh, Mozilla's browsing te- browser technologies to build on instead? I mean... I guess I, I per, like personally, I don't really care because I don't use either of those. <laughs> but I use Vivaldi. That's my main browser. It's built on Chromium. But uh, yeah, so uh, I, I guess it's um, I like that that Chromium has enabled browsers like Vivaldi and Brave to 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 exist. I think it would be damn near impossible for them to exist if there wasn't such a project as Chromium. But in this, at the same time, I, I agree with you that the like Chrome and Brave, uh, they're taking different routes, but they are trying to figure out ways to serve you ads in, in different ways. Mozilla doesn't really seem to be doing that, and Apple doesn't really have a foot in the advertising game from that perspective, as far as I can tell. Microsoft does, right? If is is a Bling Bing even still a thing? Bing is still a thing, um, though Bing. Uh... Like if they just change the default search engine on their Chromium based thing, they get just as much out of it as having a unique browser, which I'm sure is part of the calculus that they made, mm-hmm. right? Is like they could be investing way less and be at the forefront, get probably better usership because I think, you know, users don't care about a lot of these sort of long-term questions. They're just saying like, what's going to serve me best now? And if they have their default search be Bing, they get that money. I mean, Mozilla makes their money based on search as well, right? They have a search deal, I think, with Google right now to be the, have Google be the default search engine on Firefox. Mm-hmm. It's all coming back to advertising money, uh, which, you know, that's kind of the way the web has been built. Um, and that's the one reason why, um, in some ways, Apple can go a different way is that they actually, they are the only one that their web browser stuff there is about feeding back into the hardware ecosystem rather than driving money through search. So we should all switch to Safari. <laughs> I think this is fair to mention that, um, you know, back when, when IE was king, um, th- that was proprietary software uh, and Chromium is not. I think that will make a significant difference in how this plays out. 
Uh, I guess I'm not, you know, not entirely convinced that it's all doom and gloom. Um, you know, obviously Mozilla has it in their interests to, um, to say so, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is not the same thing that happened in the past, uh, from, you know, in my opinion anyway. Well, that is a good point that things weren't open source in the past. And so there was no control or no insight or oversight into anything. And there will be more oversight. And I think that the possible consequence of that is they just fork and go their own ways if if things ever get too too crazy. But hopefully going forward, they will all kind of coalesce around being built on uh, fully open source technologies that we can uh, see into and contribute back to and uh, understand what they're doing. That being said, like one of, one of the major problems was not just that I was proprietary, it, it shipped with the OS. And, you know, Microsoft Edge ships with the OS. Um, so, yeah, maybe more, more, I, I'd have more concern about, about Microsoft's role. But again, they've kind of turned things around, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, I, I'm just, I'm just not convinced it's, it's going to be, it's going to be the end of the open web and, and, and everything is going to go to crap, you know. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams. Deploy, manage, scale faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Managing infrastructure is easy for teams, whether you're running one virtual machine or thousands. Use our special link to get $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free. Head to do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. So for this final segment, uh, we thought we'd talk about uh, being, since this is the last recorded episode of JS Party for the year, uh, we'd look back on uh, what were some of the big highlights of uh, JS and the ecosystem in 2018. So, uh, Bone Skull, do you want to to maybe start off? Do you have a, a big highlight of the year? Um, I, I don't I don't really love TypeScript, but I, I feel like TypeScript is really a lot of people do. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's really it seems to have really taken <laughs> off. I like that TypeScript definitions exist, and I like that I can use them in my JavaScript um, to to get more insight, but. Uh, uh, okay for others, not for me. Yeah, it really does seem like TypeScript is uh, one of the big winners of 2018. With uh, they just said they had version 3.0 come out uh, in the middle of the year. Um, Babel supports it now in Babel seven, and uh, a big thing is that Create React app ships with a a flag where you can enable TypeScript support right in that. So it's easier than ever to adopt it, and it really seems like more and more places are doing that. Well, I. I know also that the announcement has been made that the next major version of Vue.js will be built with TypeScript. Oh, snap. Yeah. I think that from a, uh, I might be biased, but from a uh, like framework um, committer perspective, TypeScript really is a great feature for that because you can still build stuff that works really great in JavaScript, but you get really nice type safety to eliminate a lot of common bugs and in my opinion, it's just more welcoming to contributors who want to come in and take part in developing. Another big thing that happened this year, JS Party restarted. Yeah, 
That was all big of us news. are new this year. <laughs> that was big news. Yeah, uh, I think what May in May was the first episode of the reboot. April, I think. April. Yeah, you're right. I, I guess at some level, I'm surprised we're not talking about the cool new web framework because there isn't one, which is <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I mean, Dojo did come out in 2018. Dojo two. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, you know, so like, uh, good reaction, the, good reaction, the, the big players, uh, you know, the ones with the most market share that, you know, the, it seems like the ones that were big in, 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 in 2018 were also big in 2017. Mm-hmm. So it, it's nice that there is not like this incredible new framework that, that everybody says, Oh, wow, I need to trash all my code and convert to this new thing. And, um, yeah, it it feels like, you know, where there was once a lot of fatigue, there's there's sort of, sort of been this uh, stabilization a bit this last year. Yeah. And um, I, I, I dig that. Yeah, for sure. I think that, that that's a great thing. And um, React is huge, but I think the, uh, well, maybe it was 2018, but some of the big news is that Vue is really a contender to it. So there's there's healthy competition there, but you're right, it's not... 10,000 frameworks or a new framework every day. It's healthy competition between the big frameworks. Uh, and they're both, uh, they're all just growing in functionality and ease of use and adoption. NPM published some really interesting stuff on this year in JavaScript. And one of the things they highlighted was, yeah, React's growth has started to slow down relative to overall ecosystem growth. Angular is still going strong, relatively flat. Uh, Vue has been growing strongly. Uh, Ember has started to come back, at least number of NPM downloads, uh, which is cool because they do a lot of really interesting, innovative stuff. Uh, the only framework that does seems to be continuing to really die away is Backbone. It's incredible that we're still talking about Backbone. <laughs> you know what I learned? Because I was digging into... Uh, oh, this is actually big news, 2018. WordPress just released officially a React-based editor as their primary editor. Gutenberg is now React. So WordPress, which has been both the most popular framework for building websites for forever and also every developer's bane, is legitimately modernizing and embracing modern JavaScript. But anyway, looking into that, they're still using Backbone for some of their API wrappers. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard um, interesting things about Gutenberg. What are those interesting things? <laughs> I've heard that it's not the most accessible, accessibly built code. I too heard that. Yes. So I think it is possible to say that Gutenberg is a big step forward along many fronts and also a big problem on and potentially step backwards on other fronts. And accessibility is one where it sounds like there were problems from the very start in terms of process and how it was being evaluated. And it, those problems have not been resolved remind me what how we know this there was like a was there like a a medium post about it from somebody on the team who i I feel like it was something like that and they and they had resigned um in in protest or something is that what happened there there have been like dozens of posts about this particular issue Dozens. (laughs) yeah uh, i've featured at least three on my newsletter like it's it's been coming up a lot let me see if i can and find some there was definitely you know Folks raising flags, resigning from the accessibility team on WordPress, you know, various other things. I mean, essentially saying that their concerns had not been, uh, I don't want to say they hadn't been addressed, but they hadn't been taken seriously or really thought about, right? Like that it was um, the, 
they were raising what are essentially design level questions of saying like how how should we be approaching this in a way that can facilitate accessibility and the team was not even listening to those and essentially trying to bug fix their way to accessibility that's disappointing that their priorities weren't there from the start um, but hopefully it does improve i have to say that i think that a big winner uh, in terms of the web and open source uh, for 2018 uh, really has to be Microsoft at this point uh, because they had a lot of big news. We talked about TypeScript um, that is growing in popularity, but they also bought GitHub this year uh, and that's big news there. That's a big contribution into, or a big investment into open source and the open source ecosystem. Um, They're rebuilding their browser in Chromium. That's a, that can count as 2018 news, even though we just talked about it in the last segment. And um, there's one other thing. Oh, Visual Studio Code is just exploding in popularity. So um, a lot of large majority of uh, web developers are using Microsoft technologies every day for most things, which is pretty, pretty crazy. So the, the same company, Microsoft, now um, essentially owns, of course, the VS Codes from Microsoft, but they also own Atom. Mm-hmm which um, it seems has been kind of declining in popularity because of VS Code. And I thought just, was it even yesterday, Facebook announced that their editor built on Atom um, is being retired. Yeah, so that's being retired too. And so there, I think Atom is kind of uh, a loser this year because of of these things. I always forget that they also technically own Atom. Yeah, that is interesting that they're retiring it. I'm looking at, I didn't see that, but I'm seeing it now. Do they say why? Oh, fa- uh, Facebook? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't see anything about why, but one can assume that <laughs> they're all probably just using VS Code. I'll be holding on to Vim until the bitter end, but it is exciting to see that. And there are a lot of really cool features in, in VS Code that make me jealous sometimes, but I'll just be the old curmudgeon. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. You're the Vim guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Vim guy. I may also be a Vim guy. <laughs> I, 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 too, use Vim, but not as my main editor. But, uh, yeah. Um, hey, what about editor monoculture? I'm afraid of that, too. That's a problem. Yeah. But there will always be a hardcore segment of people using Vim. And there, there's data out there. Uh I think it's uh, TripleByte has published data. TripleByte does, they're like a recruiting manager firm essentially. But what they do is they, they have interview engineers who interview engineers and then help match. So they pre-screen folks and then match them to a bunch of companies. But that means they have a bunch of data about engineers and, and how well they do on sort of standardized engineering tests. And they did a bunch of stuff about, you know, skill level by editor. And the clear, obvious winners are Vim and Emacs. And that can have nothing to do with the fact that those people are all old school and have been doing this forever. And clearly is a statement about the beneficial qualities of using Vim and Emacs. Exactly. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I, one of the things that really drew me to JavaScript way back when I, I guess, first got out of college was I didn't need this big, cumbersome editor. Uh, Eclipse was, was what we were using at my first job. And I didn't need that to actually feel productive in JavaScript because I really felt that it didn't give me anything. And so I could kind of go my own way and, and understand the language. And, and I really liked that and switched over to Vim. And I, I do use like the language service 
uh, for like TypeScript, for example. So I do get auto completion and things like that. But I'd be terrified of a browser or sorry, an editor monoculture where you need an accompanying an accompanying editor to do your work and nothing else will really work. That would be terrifying to me. One other big uh, thing that I think really hit its stride this year uh, is GraphQL is starting uh-huh. to be very much a thing. And in fact, I was looking back at, you know, all the episodes we did, we talked about JS party you know, restarting the most popular episode to date of our new round has been the episode on GraphQL. Have either of you used it? No, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I have I haven't implemented anything with it or, or tried to create, you know, a, a, a an API or anything like that. But what I have done is I have used uh, uh, GitHub's GraphQL API. Um, and I found that um, for picking out very specific points of data, it's really nice compared to trying to work with the RESTful API, especially since you can just... Um, Load up uh, what gra- Graphicule? I don't know how mm-hmm. you pronounce that, but that uh, that you know that it's basically just a, a GraphQL query editor, and um, and just fire off queries at the API and and get data back. And um, yeah, I found it a lot a lot easier to do, especially since you don't have to make all these sequential calls to get at what you want. Um, so I, I think it's pretty cool, just from a consumer um, an API consumer point of view. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that that'll be a technology that we are done hearing about in 2019. Yeah, I I haven't used it, um, but I've been watching and reading. And I think, you know, they have some real things to figure out, you know, in terms of like one of the really nice things about REST is the way that it can lean into browser caching semantics and all of that. But most mm-hmm. people aren't actually using that. <laughs> you know, most people are not having their RESTful resources be cacheable and things like that because they're just keeping things fresh all around. So um, I do think GraphQL has some really interesting things, both in terms of the ease of use, but also in terms of moving, like even if you just use it to wrap a RESTful API, now you're making all those REST calls down in a, you know, presumably very fast network inside of your uh, data center rather than from whatever slow network you're in with your your mobile phone or whatever. And the, the slow network only has to make one call. Yeah. And I'll, I'll post a link in show notes. There's a, uh, a good blog post by Netflix about their learnings from adopting GraphQL. That's an interesting read. Now I, I read that too. And I was uh, kind of confused because um, a year or two ago, I don't remember, but uh, they, they had their own thing, Falcor. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it is uh, GraphQL-like uh, as far as I understand. It's um, less full-featured than GraphQL. And so I wonder what that means for the future of the Falcor project. I mean, is that something Netflix is still committed to or uh, are they thinking about abandoning it and, and just going – going for GraphQL like the rest of the world or, or what. Um, uh, obviously, none of us work at Netflix, so I don't think we can answer those questions, but I'm curious to know. Yeah, and it, uh, they did mention in the, that they had considered uh, using Falcor, so maybe I'm wondering if this is just like a different internal team uh, that had a decision to make and decided to go with GraphQL, but that that would say uh, a little bit towards towards Falcor and maybe its future, but yeah, we don't know. But uh, in terms of 
learning from what they learned uh, about GraphQL. It is an interesting read. So what do you see as, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, what What are your predictions for 2019? I think more and more things will be written in TypeScript. I'm also really excited to see uh, what comes out of uh, the Deno project and see if that gets any traction. Uh, Deno is, uh, in, in case you don't remember, it's a uh, node-like uh, environment built on TypeScript, but without a lot of the faults that Node has. And it's created by the original creator of Node, Ryan Dahl. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, that is a, an interesting thing to look in. I think a lot of the trends that are going on will continue. You know, the safest, uh, most you know, predictable way to predict the future is say, well, you know, what just happened in the past, that's probably going to keep happening. I do think we may be hitting a place where uh, JavaScript has a bit of a reckoning when it comes to security and thinking about security. There's been more and more stuff in that direction with npm you know introducing their audit tools there have been a lot of discussions some of these high profile hacks and things like that um but i still feel like the ecosystem right now is very fast and free and not thinking about that that much and i think we may be starting to hit a a turning point on that so maybe in 2019 that'll be when we all start doing security audits of our code and managing all of our dependencies for security I hope so. <laughs> Having a big focus on that is and will be a good thing. And I think that NPM is in the right place. Their their minds are in the right place for uh, enabling that. That was one of the things I thought was pretty interesting about Deno is they were talking about like one of the challenges with Node was that it's very hard to do security in Node and they wanted to put that in place and sort of sandboxing and thinking about you know what has permissions to do what from the mm-hmm. first from the bottom up. Yeah. So by default in Deno, I think that uh, an application doesn't have IO access to to like the hard drive uh, and it may not have network access. So it can't really do anything unless you specifically give it uh, or call it with a dash dash net flag or an IO flag and enable that. But I'm sure there's there's ways for modules that you would use to uh, specifically state these are the flags we need uh, enabled and then being able to run it like that. And if those flags ever change, then that can be a big alert that you need to go look in into what they're actually trying to do. Other predictions? Hmm. I think maybe uh, Vue passes Angular and becomes like, they're already number two in hype to React, but I think in terms of usage, Angular might actually still be a little bit ahead. Uh, But Vue's on a better growth curve and it's also infinitely more awesome. So that's my prediction. 2019, Vue passes Angular in use. I look forward to actually using Vue in 2019. Another prediction that I have is uh, I think that we'll see some uh, common WebAssembly things coming out that we're, we're using. So maybe we'll be using things that aren't written in JavaScript or a variant like TypeScript, but something that's actually compiled with WebAssembly and then used in, in general use. You are already, aren't you? Don't you use source maps? Oh, good point. Yeah. They're, it's just invisible, man. It's under the covers. I can tell you what won't happen in 2019. ES modules in Node. <laughs> <laughs> if they're still going the MJS route, then that's a good thing. <laughs> well, as far as I understand, the, um, the, uh, the LTS is set up uh, so that uh, the, the earliest that they could um, release like a stable module implementation would be 2020. Um, 
just because they can't they can't ship anything new until then um, for for this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, um, ah, uh, hey, at least there's uh, there's ESM um, uh, the the package uh, which works great. So check that out. I think maybe um, we'll see some some good good solutions for or better solutions for shipping. ES modules and in node code simply from from user land. Yeah, it's surprisingly hard right now. Like I was I was yeah. trying to so I mostly do stuff just purely for the web. And so I'm, you know, very used to using Webpack to bundle my stuff. And I was building a little node app to just dig up some data for myself. And I was trying to do it with Webpack. And it was such a nightmare. And I'm used to mm-hmm. using, you know, ES modules and getting everything. I ended up changing it and just using straight Babel to compile it, not Webpack. And that seems to work transpiling my, I think I, it did transpile my ES modules into requireable things. I don't remember. Or maybe I had to switch uh, to using require instead of my expected ES modules. No, I think I, I was able to use ES modules then and just Babel took care of it for me. If if all you need are the modules, check out the um, ESM package. Uh, basically, you just... you just like re- require it like dash dash require, or you can like kind of like bootstrap it as in your, um, in your, uh, uh, the first script you load and it just kind of enables, um, it's kind of magic and it just, it just kind of works and, and you can use all the, the, uh, yes modules. Um, and there's some flags and stuff. If you prefer MJS or you want to use, um, require and import and, and all these things, it, it, it's, it's really quite clever and cool. Um, but also along those lines, I'm curious or um, I'm, I'm eager to see what an NPM does with, uh, their tink project, um, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, uh, a, a, third-party module loader. I don't even know what you'd call Tank. Um, and likewise, Yarns. Um, gosh, I forget. I forget what it's called. Plug and play or something like that. What is what is Yarns things thing called? That's that's similar. But anyhow, yeah, I, I, I'd like. I'm, I'm eager to see what comes up there. Uh, I guess I'm not eager to see what breaks. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, people will start coming along and say, hey, I'm trying to use Tink or whatever. And um, then then I get I get bugs um, because my stuff doesn't work with Tink. And it's like, oh, God. But, um, yeah, they're doing some cool stuff there um, in terms of making, uh, you know, cutting down on the, the load times and the install times and the and build times and stuff like that. And I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, that whole node modules list future uh, does seem very interesting. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, where that goes in 2019 for sure. You know, one thing we didn't talk about that happened in 2018 was um, Babel 7. And hmm. they're sort of back away. They're like the backing away of implicitly include all the new features and towards being much more explicit about, you know, what JavaScript uh, proposals that are not yet standardized do you want to pull in um, and I think that's actually a really interesting development you know it's kind of saying like we got ourselves into trouble being too eager to pull all these new things in before they were stabilized like let's actually uh, change the tooling so that we don't get that problem as much yeah for sure and that is a step in the right direction uh, for adopting features that have a very high likelihood of actually being part of the language 
and being safe to use. So yeah, definitely applaud them on on that decision. I mean, that's cool. But at the same time, I think that's going to push more people into using TypeScript or um, maybe other like alternative transpilers that that do just do it all for you. Yeah, there was a really interesting thing that uh, Lori Voss of NPM said on the the interview that Nick and I did with him, uh, which shipped, I guess, two last weeks week. ago. If you well, last week from now, but two weeks ago from when you're going to hear this, yep, uh, or for when this episode ships. Uh, but he commented, he's like, you know, one of the things that the the rise of TypeScript is showing is that if you have to do a build step anyway, you might not choose JavaScript. And you know, I think that's an interesting problem for JavaScript to have to address, right? Like the promise of JavaScript, the original appeal of JavaScript is you didn't have to deal with make and compilers and this and that and the other. And we've gotten back into a world where we're dealing with essentially make, except we call it, uh, you know, Webpack or we call it NPM or whatever. And we've got compilers and we've got module bundlers and we've got this and we got that. And, you know, if we're doing, having all of that overhead anyway, is JavaScript the language we're going to use? Should we use TypeScript? Should we use Rust? Should we use some other, you know, language that gives us more power? And then that that makes me wonder if if you're not writing for the web. I mean, uh, I feel like the 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 adoption of of tools like TypeScript and Babel have been primarily driven by by uh, you know those people deploying for the web. Um, you know, will Node be this like wasteland of JavaScript <laughs> and, and the web is all written in type, TypeScript? Is that what's going to happen? I don't know. Um, because, you know, if you're writing for, I don't know, Node 10 or whatever, Async's there, like they've got all the features already in V8. Um, so the only thing that they don't have is is the, the modules. Um, but you're, but require is synchronous and that works great for node. So what, what, what does node need there? I mean, um, I think a lot of people who are, um, writing, um, tools and, and stuff in node don't, don't necessarily see TypeScript and Babel as the necessity that, that others do yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I'd be curious to know how many node, I mean, NPM is an interesting thing, which started for node and now is also the de facto package management for the web. But I wonder how many people who are writing explicitly for node are using a build step or is all the build step stuff, you know, web focused. I ended up, as I said, when I went into node, I wanted my ES modules. And so I, the way that I found to do that involved a build script and I was comfortable with that because I was already doing it. But yeah, if you don't have to, why would you? Yeah, I think that that's a, a much easier decision now that um, async await is in Node. Um, before that, that would have been the main feature that drove me to using a build step. Well, those are some interesting predictions, um, and it's really great to see what's happened in 2018, and I'm really excited to see what's happened in 2019. Uh, one final prediction uh, that I can pretty much guarantee is that the party will continue on into 2019, and so we look forward to you all joining us then. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just going to have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. 
And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. I need to give myself permission to not overdo it. If I know that the weather forecast is really good tomorrow and I don't have to do a podcast tomorrow and I could go to the beach, maybe I go to the beach. Maybe I do something that is not work. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts. Was that the end? I think so. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's the end of the world as we know it. Now this is the end. (laughs) I wonder if, do y'all remember, uh, so New Year's always makes me think of, I remember way back way back you know I was about to go into my senior year of high school and we were or I was I guess in my senior year of high school and the the song of the times was party like it's 1999 and I wonder if we're going to hit that again for 2019 like it's the end of the decade coming up you mean it was 1999 when you graduated high school not was, that it was, ni- it was 1986 or whatever when you released the song <laughs> no, no no it was it was 2000 when I uh graduated high school so it was 99 2000 was my year and they were playing party like it's 1999 everywhere all the time and especially around new year's man that was annoying yeah oh but it made me wonder now that we're 2019 end of the decade what does it mean we're we're out of the i don't even know what this decade is called the 2010s yeah uh the the teens we're about to go into the roaring 20s again Oh, crap.